A warning that this episode contains content that is not appropriate for young listeners and may be triggering for some people. If you or anyone you know is considering suicide, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 988. The National Sexual Assault Hotline is 1-800-656-4673. There was a, there's a, a movie on Hulu. Um, what is it called? It's a uh, Michael Keaton's in it. It's about the OxyContin, the the Stingler family. Cherry trees grow best in deep, well-drained soil. The epidemic is killing tens of thousands of Americans every year. This problem doesn't start or end at the border. How widespread is the blame for America's opioid epidemic that has led to so much addiction and death? America's opioid crisis shows no signs of abating. When planting, it's best if the ground is soft and filled with moisture fallen from the skies. In 2021, an estimated 107,000 Americans died of opioid overdoses. That's up nearly... New data out today indicates that deaths from drug overdoses in the U.S. reached a record high last year. This problem that has, has, has taken the lives of 600,000 Americans. First, a deep hole must be dug. More than 107,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2021. That's the highest annual death toll ever like recorded. Every 19 minutes, someone dies of an accidental prescription drug overdose. They're not Republicans. They're not Democrats. They're not living in red state or blue state or geography or rich or poor or black or white. They're human beings that we need to help support. The way that it's happened for the country, the epidemic is kind of how it happened to me. Little did I know all of that, all of the stuff that I went through, that was going to be my purpose. talking to women near and far this season about how living in rural America affects their health. Many of us know that rural areas of the country have been hit especially hard by opioid and methamphetamine misuse. There is a huge gap in mental health and psychiatric care providers in rural areas. We'll hear about a sober living option for women started by a woman who misused and trafficked substances for most of her life. The beautiful cherry tree from the depths of despair. Today on Middle of Everywhere, telling big stories from the small places we call home. Holly Cherry is a fourth generation Murrian. Murray is the town where I produce this podcast, and so much about Murray brings to mind the Middle American identity. Holly's background seems rich and wholesome with roots that run deep on the family farm. I grew up here in Murray, Kentucky. Um, I'm the youngest child of uh, three. My sister is 14 years older than me, and my brother is nine years older than me. So I come, uh, I think I was maybe a, uh-oh. <laughs> and uh, I was probably 13 when um, I got drunk for the first time. And when I felt that liquor go in my body, like it was an ease and comfort that I'd been looking for. 
Callaway County, where Murray is located, was a completely dry county until the early 2000s. So growing up, Holly's father always had a stockpile of beer in the house. So I knew if I took a six-pack, he would never miss it, right? I was going to this sleepover um, on a Friday night, and um, like I wrapped them, wrapped all the beer bottles up in my clothes for the sleepover, and I put them in my little blue Samsonite bag, and I carried it to school with me. But we get over there, and I was like, I'm pulling out the bottles, and you know, there's like four, four of us girls. I just looked at them, and I said, I'm going to take four of these. I'm going to drink four, and you can split. You, gir- you girls can split too. Selfish, self-centered. I felt comfort and ease, like that. Now that's what I was looking for. I fell down the steps. Uh, my friend's mom was like, she opened the door, and I fell on out because she was like, "What in the world? You know what's happening?" <laughs> I have fallen down so many steps drunk, and I've never gotten injured. I don't know how that's... Holly's addictive behavior started during the innocence of childhood and continued for most of her life. Like, I did cocaine probably until I was, I don't know, 24, uh, 23. 23, I got married. I got married when I was 23, or 22. I'm sorry, 22 the first time. A lifetime of heavy substance use has made it a bit difficult for her today to recall everything with total accuracy. Uh, And at that point, I was a senior in college, and uh, um, I dropped out. And then I married this guy just because I wanted to be married. All my other friends were getting married. Holly had, in her words, a perfectionism problem. She wanted to be everything to everyone. Though marriage was what Holly thought she wanted, She continued doing drugs with friends without her husband knowing. Her substance use ended her marriage after three years. I was a a party girl. I was 25 or 6 when we divorced, Um, and then I I went back to college. She worked several part-time jobs doing various things. And then I'm trying to, you know, party as much as I can. I graduated in 99 with a degree in organizational communications with a minor in nonprofit. When I graduated from college, I was uh, I went to work at an insurance local insurance agency. I liked the people that I worked with because one of them was a drinker, you know, like and he was my boss and we could drink and at night. Holly's work and play life were often separate on paper, though colliding in reality. She would go from one job to the next and always perform well while keeping up with her party lifestyle. But one night, in her late 20s, she was introduced to something by a friend that would scorch this balancing act. We were at um, Taylor's Bar and Grill down south, and um, he was like, come out to the car, I've got some Coke. And I, and I was like, oh gosh, I haven't done that in a long time. I can drink, you know, the more Coke I do, the longer I can drink. But I went out to the car and, um, you know, it was dark. And he laid it out, laid out the line, and, and it was like a, a big line. And when I did it, I, it burnt my nose, but like it was fast. When it trickled all over my body, I was like, this is, this is, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. Drinking, drugging, like this, this is, this is it. There was no, no mistake that I had found like maybe the love of my life. 
Holly found out that what she had snorted was not coke, but a line of meth. You know, like I thought it, I had such a, I just thought really trashy people did that. And, um, you know, I'm gonna feel, I always wanna feel, I don't know, maybe superior. But after trying it, the stigma? Oh, after I did it, it was gone. Holly said that meth unlocked something for her. When she got into using meth regularly, it allowed her to use her brain in a way she hadn't been able to before. When I went back to school, I was diagnosed with ADHD, and they put me on Adderall. I didn't really ever mistake the Adderall. Uh, I used it like it was prescribed. More research has been conducted in recent decades on the connection between ADHD and substance use disorder. Some of this research suggests that children with ADHD are two and a half times more likely to experience some form of substance use disorder in their life. And other research suggests that when boys were treated early on for ADHD with pharmaceuticals, they were 85% less likely to experience substance use disorder. And Adderall works, worked well too, but not as well as, as meth for me. Um, but, you know, the meth is illegal. <laughs> it's the compartments of my brain, they were all open and ready for me to put them to work. The Holly Cherry I met with doesn't seem to have any resemblance to the Holly Cherry she described to me. The ADHD was a bit evident once I was looking for it, but for anyone who meets her for the first time, she is a blossomed professional with an internal drive that nourishes her life, managing a woman's sober living program. I'm a dreamer. Today, she is an advocate of one of the most commonly known treatments for drug and alcohol addiction, a 12-step program. When I took those steps, I awakened spiritually. It's like I've lived two different lives. Holly is disciplined and devoted to keeping up with her spiritual health. I exercise Monday through Friday like it's my job. Um, I'm addicted to clean eating and I like putting fuel in my body and not, um, you know, not things for pleasure. Reciting a daily mantra. And it's usually when I'm walking my dog and the sun's coming up. I give my will and my life to my creator. I ask him to place me to be of maximum service to him and the people about me. Keep me well fed and well rested. Keep the bad energies off of me. Take away my character defects. Help me to self-love and self-forgive. And to help me to grow in the image and likeness of you, whatever you are. She's the transitional living director with Neartown Recovery, where she manages the Women's Sober Living Program, Her Town. She's also the executive director at Serenity Recovery, a non-residential treatment program run similarly to Neartown. If they come to the sober houses, what they would do is they'd have to go to an inpatient facility, a 20, at least a 28-day facility. Sometimes it's longer. Sometimes people, if they're incarcerated, they go to a, what they call a SAP program, which is a substance abuse program, and that's incarcerated. So that's usually a six-month program, and then this would be their aftercare. The sober houses kind of put you back into, into the community, and you've got some freedom, but you're also held accountable to, you know, random weekly drug testing. The both places will do 90 meetings in 90 days. 
They'll get a sponsor and they'll work the steps with that sponsor. The Neartown Sober Living Program is a six-month program where guests bunk with a roommate and regularly meet with Holly and her assistant, though guests will sometimes stay in the house much longer. The program's 90 meetings don't all necessarily have to look like sitting in a room with a bunch of other people in recovery. We also give meetings for self-help stuff. If they've got a therapy, I'll give a meeting for that as well. They get rewarded for doing what they, they're supposed to be doing. So like a meeting with their, um, their therapist, if they exercise, we'll give one meeting a week for exercise. If they, you know, anything that they're doing that's self-help, um, I'm open. Okay. And if they do service projects, like if they were to help somebody move or, yeah. you know, just being able to give back, that's another thing that I would give a meeting credit for. We do that in both places. Okay. Yeah. In okay. church, they get meeting credits for church, for attending okay. church if they're religious yeah. people. And though these programs can be court ordered, a person can only stay in them if they consent to a code of conduct. The Sober Living House prohibits alcohol and narcotics. It requires cooperation with everyone in the house, a curfew, and even requires residents to obtain work and save $50 a week to put towards their exit strategy. This last requirement really surprised me, but it's clear that for some people, this is the only way they can get their life back. On paper, this program looks rigorous and onerous, but when you step into the house, there's a very different feeling that surrounds you. Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm Ariel. Hi, Hi Ariel. Hi. Thank you all for letting me come in tonight. I really so what we do on Friday nights at both houses, we have a meeting where we kind of do community circle. Um, if there's anything going on in the house between the guests, we squash it out. Holly got clearance for me to attend one of her town's Friday night dinners. She didn't give me the address to the house because, as she explained, it wouldn't come up on a map. It's intentionally hidden from the public for the safety of the women, and for the sake of their safety, I'll be fuzzing out any names mentioned. Our food, and well, before we do, let's do our standard hands in the air. Ready? Thank you, Lord, for giving us food. <laughs> the the book tells us it's the the fellowship in which you crave you encourage and you have the fellowship that you've always craved because addiction is about connection so tell me what all this um just dried split peas um celery carrots garlic salt pepper onion dried split peas that's what i sold i sold them once as a roxy <laughs> for real the ones that come from what, Nippon? <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a yeah. Burger, but yeah, yeah probably. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> it was Tasha. Like Holly said, yeah. the goal among the women is to connect with each other. Though some of them had been strangers just a few weeks earlier, they talked and joked about taboo subjects like selling fake oxy pills. And they finish their dinner in record speed. Yeah, it is good. We well, don't mess around with our Almost all of us have been to jail. It's that good. I haven't. Yeah, it's got like 15 minutes to eat there. Oh, wow. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. in jail long enough. Another graduate of the program, well, now working for Serenity Recovery, joined us for dinner that night. It, yes, so a lot of people say like it, it changed their life, but I see it as like it gave me a new life. Yeah. Um, so RIP to that old Chris. It's <laughs> like, wow, it was a game changer. Really? For sure. yeah. yeah. So now I'm a sponsor, um, I work in recovery, I get to volunteer at Serenity, I'm a lead volunteer there, so. 
12-step programs have been around for almost a century, with their beginnings in Alcoholics Anonymous, founded in 1935. Perhaps because of this long history, many of us have heard something about 12-step programs, and some of us might even think we understand how a person might move through a program into a new life. But people don't often grow out of their hole in a straight line, like a mighty redwood reaching for the sky. The path people follow often looks much more like the wandering and splitting branches of the humbler cherry tree. First, they need to find which way is up. The way that it's happened for the country, the epidemic is kind of how it happened to me. For most people in the U.S., this country's drug epidemic is not a new issue. It is something that has been increasingly plaguing us, especially our vulnerable small communities, for decades. When Holly was telling me every detail she could remember about her life with substance use, and my name was what they call hot in the area, <laughs> I had imagery running through my head from Hollywood dramatizations. Dude, I was running with people that had charges. I was hearing the many news stories about exploding meth labs, synthetic bath salts, and Sudafed runs. We would go in and pick up the display. And of course, the extremely dramatized scenes with the Mexican drug cartels in Breaking Bad, which, it turns out, Holly also has some experience with. I was scared to death. The few times I was around the sergeant, I saw things that I can't forget. Her story evoked big screen images for me, down to the last moments of her battle with substance misuse. I had found um, a bottle of liquid Dilaudid, which is an opiate, and I was putting that on top of meth, and that's, the, that's what I was intravenously injecting. I held a gun in my lap and in my mouth. I couldn't pull the trigger, so I'll just make another shot bigger. Each of these moments was extremely personal and intense for Holly. And yet, thanks to the news media and popular entertainment, it all felt familiar. I had a 13-year run with it. What I'm less familiar with is how a person who has dug this deep ever gets themselves out. Historically, our government's answer has been to incarcerate people and let them out on parole. Um, would it be helpful like, if I explain what probation and parole is? It's such a legal thing. <laughs> if I wasn't a lawyer, I would have no idea really what probation and parole means, even though I hear it on TV all the time. My name is Sabrina Talukter. I am the director of the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Sabrina has represented scores of women who have suffered substance misuse and trafficking. People that are under probation and parole, they're under a kind of community supervision. But they have to check in with someone who can put them back in jail. The probation and parole system for people who are arrested for drug offenses, and particularly women, it's explicitly failing substance users in monitoring women or aiding them. When you've made a mistake or you're thinking about it, why would you tell the person who is it's most likely to reincarcerate you. This kind of reasoning tracks true with Holly's story. She's been on parole three different times, and from what she told me, it seemed all too easy for her to evade the system. 
The first time she was out of jail, she moved to Illinois with permission to do her parole through an interstate compact. I got lost in the system up there. Mm-hmm. Like I never had, I never reported that whole time. I would check in to see if I needed to come, and they were like, "No, you're still, you're still in process." And I'm like, "Oh God, great! I'm going to get high again this week." That when I was on probation in Kentucky, like I would go until three days before I had to report, and then I would, you know, like do a cleanse and, you know, like get myself ready to if I had to urinate. She even found ways of getting around the testing requirements when she was on probation at a rehab program in rural Oklahoma that cost her mother $30,000 on top of insurance coverage. I'm carrying urine with me at all times. I hid it in a, in a condom in my private area because you had to keep it warm. And ironically, it was while Holly was serving her probation trying to hide out in another state, that she got hooked in with the cartel. She told me there's a term for people who are court-ordered to attend some kind of treatment program while on probation who might not be willing participants. They call them paper signers, meaning they show up wherever their parole officer has assigned and get their parole papers signed for as long as the court requires. And sometimes the attitudes are bad because they don't want to be there. They're just having to get their papers signed. But really, that person that's getting their paper signed might just hear something that's going to save their life. Holly has a history in our community of being a nurturer. And while some of the things that grew weren't always the most beneficial to our community, she was always dreaming of growing beautiful things. And I dreamt that dream for... It was probably actually before I started doing math. I had the idea, but then when I started doing math, I was like really gung-ho to to do it. After her first arrest, she was nearly caught again for manufacturing, which scared her badly enough to stay mostly sober for a year and a half. During this mostly sober period, she opened her own flower shop. I named it The Cherry Tree. For Holly, Even though meth brought her to the very darkest places in her life, she also credits it with helping her realize her own potential. Like I said, it unlocked parts of my brain that I did not even know I had. So I became like a business person, all of it. It's a total catch-22 when you're trying to be a productive member of society. Unfortunately, Holly's career as the life force behind the cherry tree was to be short-lived. And then me and my dad have a, uh, we get in a fight because he wanted me to be open earlier on Saturday mornings. Like I didn't open until nine on Saturday mornings. That was what the fight was Yes, about. that was what it was about. And uh, he called me an acid head. And it took me 33 minutes to get some meth in my hand. This is the part of Holly's story that helps illustrate why, for some people, recovery can be nearly impossible. Trauma. Trauma. When I was 16 or 17, he and I had a physical altercation. And uh, it was, I mean, I, I, I actually threw the first blow. I ended up with broken ribs, and there's a scar on my face right here. That's where he ran my head into the storm door. When we get to the hospital, I can remember my mom saying she fell down some steps. 
So like, we just keep secrets. You know what I mean? We just, uh, we just keep secrets. He was mad at me because I'd messed up his marriage. At 16, Holly told her mother about something she witnessed nine years earlier. So when I was um, seven, I had begged my father. He, he was a car dealer. She had begged him to go on a work trip with him to Detroit hauling cars. Um, my father uh, had uh, another, I want to say family. And I visually saw my father and this woman um, having sex. During that same trip, um, he had a, uh, a fellow that worked for him that in the shop that uh, also drove the car hauler. I, I don't know exactly what time, but it's probably not nine or ten. And uh, the man got in the back of the sleeper with me. He held me down by my neck and told me if I told anyone that he would kill my family. He violated me. He violated me. And, uh, and I didn't know anything about any of that. You know, I had no idea what was happening. I was scared to death. I, I can say this, about 90% of the women that come into the rooms have had sexual trauma. The rooms of a 12-step program. The physical and mental abuse Holly experienced did not end with childhood. She entered an abusive relationship when she was much older, even married that man. When he threw me against the wall, I thought, oh, he really loves me. Again, this version of Holly Cherry that I was hearing about didn't seem to hold anything in common with the woman before me. Holly, no doubt, had PTSD after her rape, which she buried deep enough inside her to forget about completely for nearly 30 years. It's hard to know if and how much childhood trauma contributes to a woman's likelihood of becoming a substance misuser. There just isn't much quantitative data. But there is some research that shows that many, if not a majority of women suffering from substance misuse are the targets of domestic violence in their own homes. I'd first like to say that you know, when I'm talking about these things, substance users, they're not a monolith, right? Like people start using for a variety of reasons and they stop or mitigate their use in a variety of ways. There is one study on this, which is from the National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma and Mental Health. And they wrote a great research paper with multiple sites. In a study in 2009, they found that men and women entering substance abuse treatment, 40% of the women reported having experienced victimization by an intimate partner, And there was another study of women accessing substance abuse treatment services, and they found that 67% reported experiencing physical intimate partner violence in the past six months. Meaning over two-thirds of women in recovery had recently been abused. But what I would really love for people to take home is that the connection between any kind of violence and exploitation and substance use is a cycle. It's not necessarily that one triggers the other. Um, If you're suffering some kind of abuse, whether it's emotional, physical, psychological, at the hands of an intimate partner, a family member, or exploiter, it is a factor that can lead to substance use while also being part of a vicious cycle. This is why Hertown is a hidden treatment option for women. 
It could potentially be very dangerous for everyone in the house if the location were to become public. What I understand from Holly's story is that she learned how to self-medicate early on to tamp down her PTSD symptoms. Despite growing up eating homegrown foods, going to church regularly, and having what looked on the outside like a wholesome childhood, she needed something more to make her feel okay. After surviving horrific sexual trauma at seven, she began to binge eat late night bowls of cereal with spoonfuls of sugar on top. I can see that my alcoholism really manifested in food to start. She developed bulimia and drank regularly in high school, yearning for that ease and comfort. And I'm, I couldn't drink every day, but anytime I could, I did, and um, I would drink to oblivion. At the time of the altercation with her father, at 16, Holly had been drinking. The cycle of abuse and substance use, though not apparent to anyone else at the time, started when she was a young child. So again, I wonder how does anyone who has grown up learning to be in the world in one way grow a new life? When we come back, Holly tells us just how dark it is at the bottom of the hole. Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. If you find yourself wanting to see and learn more about the story in this episode, visit our website, middleofeverywherepod.org. It's full of expanded content, transcripts, and visual companions for each episode, including photographs and original artwork commissioned from Murray State University art students, along with links to all of our available episodes. That's middleofeverywherepod.org. When we left off, we had heard how trauma helped define Holly's coping habits as a young child, creating a pattern of addiction. Well, addicts and alcoholics are, are slow learners and quick forgetters. It's, it's one of those little cliche sayings. She said that in order for a person to be really ready to turn their life around, to reject the substance they crave, they have to hit bottom. If you want to be successful in your recovery, you have to have some kind of bottom that you're that you're never going to forget. I mean, that is the, the key thing. You And at, at that time, you surrender. The worst physically for Holly was the withdrawal from opiates she experienced. The last time she was arrested, her mom refused to bail her out of jail. They left me in the hole for four or five days. And, um, boy, I was sick. Where I mean, I was, I, I was pooping myself. I was throwing up. I was just so sick. And Holly's physical withdrawal, though it sounded horrendous, potentially lethal, didn't stop her from digging herself even deeper. She had experienced this kind of withdrawal once before, while in rehab years earlier. Yet, after a period of sobriety, she fell back into using, which is not an uncommon pattern. To my mind, it seemed like Holly needed perspective on her life from the outside. At the end of her 13-year run, she was physically and mentally exhausted. 
Her life was rotting away, but she couldn't see that from inside the hole. Thank God she left me in jail and didn't get me out, and thank God she did not put a lot of money on my books. She gave me $100 a month. When I, when I meet with family members today, and they're asking, what should we do? I'm like, do not enable them. The quicker you pull all the financial support, the quicker they'll hit their bottom, and the quicker they'll get better. They say uh, you'll be either sobered up, covered up, or locked up. The 1,000-foot view became clear to her one day in the ER. She had been stabbed by her abusive ex-husband, and while sitting in the waiting room, an ER nurse, a person she had known since high school, presented her with a gift. What are you doing with your life? She was like, your arms are tracked up. She said, I cannot believe that you have, you've let your life get to this, Holly. You, you, you are worth more than this. She gave me a talking to, um, it was Gina Owens. She got my attention. Gina Owens still works as a nurse, though she's now a nurse practitioner, seeing her own patients at a local clinic, including many of the women who have come to her town. She doesn't have addiction herself, but she understands addiction. Hi. Hey, I'm Gina. Hi, so nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Come on back here. Okay. Gina put in 20 years as an ER nurse and saw a lot of things during that time. You know, you you lose sight of a lot of people, and I would start seeing Holly turn up in the emergency room. Just, she came in, and I I was very blatant, but I was almost in tears. And I said, "Um, this is going to kill you. I said, you are going to die, and this is the legacy that you leave. You can do something better than this. You're going to have to leave everything that you're around. We talked for quite a while. Have you noticed an increase or a decrease, or have you taken note of the flux in people who were like coming into the ER or people who that you've treated who've had addiction problems? Oh gosh. The increase in drug addiction is astronomical. I have never seen nothing like it. I mean, it's just how it affects people mentally, physically, their dental health. Um, a lot of them are in the recovery aspects of it, but they're still suffering from bodily problems. And these people do not have insurance. There's not places that really want these patients. And it's so sad. Gina kept her composure for the 22 minutes that we talked in the back room of the clinic. As soon as we were done, she went right back to her clinical work for the day. But everything I needed to know about how she feels about the impact of the drug epidemic on our community, I could hear in her voice, in the way she tightened her throat at the end of each sentence, and the slight waver in her breath. I encourage people that are in healthcare to be the change that you want to see. I mean, you know, accept these people, help them. They need somebody to support them because this is one of the hardest things they'll ever have to go through in their life. And these women need support.
that's why I'm still here because I'm working on it. So on my days off, when I don't have my grandbaby, and I keep my grandbaby here some nights. And, yeah. I mean, not overnight. It's clear that her town so, gives women support. I was sober, and then whenever my dad passed away, years later, my daughter graduated. I lost my who I was and what I was there for. I felt like I had no purpose. But giving guests at her town a sense of purpose might be one of the most significant aspects of this program's success. It certainly doesn't treat these women as dangerous offenders to be kept in the shadows of society, as so much of their journey might have looked before they got here. But I went there in shackles on the prison Yeah. In the jumpsuit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny, I went to prison without a handcuff. Sabrina Talakdar made me aware of a very intriguing and very galling connection between the so-called war on drugs and the incarceration rates of white women in rural areas today. For rural women in particular, opioids and prescription medications are really on the rise, and that is reflective, you know, of our public health crisis on drug overdoses and opioid use. Um, and interestingly, this is kind of in parallel with the incarceration of white women for drug offenses. Over the past 35 years, the total arrests for women have risen by 25%, even though the rate has decreased 33% for men. The Prison Policy Initiative did a really incredible study and found that women's drugs arrests were actually up in all different kind of counties. Incarceration for white women is on the rise staggeringly in comparison to other racial groups. The reason why white women can be incarcerated, be taken away from their families, from their communities, etc., the reason why that exists is because there's a system that has been in place for black women, for Hispanic women, etc., where this was always the appropriate response. And the criminal legal system is never the answer to a public health epidemic. Essentially, a system that was set up to ensnare a minority population of drug offenders in the United States is now criminalizing a majority population, a possibly unintended consequence of the residual from the war on drugs. And one of the reasons white women are so susceptible now to substance use... White women are more likely to be on Medicaid than most of these other groups. Medicaid is a government program designed to provide health insurance for low-income individuals and families. And if you're on Medicaid, you're more likely to prescribe opioids, receive higher doses of opioids, and take opioids for a longer period of time. Um, That's from a national survey of substance use treatment services from 2018. Nearly one in four non-elderly adults in rural areas of the U.S. find health insurance through Medicaid. While Holly didn't develop her disorder from prescription misuse, and she even goes so far as to say that she masterminded the system, she understands that no matter how people got here, this is a disorder, and people under her care should be treated accordingly. Back in the the 80s when it was... uh the crack cocaine epidemic and they're putting people in jail for life. You know, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. There are people that were convicted in the 80s that that have life sentences. And what we've got to do is stop out the stigma. People, you know, like we need to let people know that one in 10 of us are going to be addicted. 
it affects us different, okay? And it's probably something to do with our body chemistry, Mm -hmm. the way we process it. There's certainly lots more research today that shows that addiction is a medical condition that can be treated with medical practices. But regardless of a person's propensity to fall into addictive behaviors, there could be a really huge social component to this. When Holly was being arrested for the last time, she told the deputy something that echoed what her guests told me. I don't have a purpose. I don't know what my purpose is. We've heard a lot of numbers and some ideas about what drives addiction, but the truth is that the quantitative data is still hugely lacking, especially in women's substance use. And to those trying to address the problem, stories like Holly's have a significant role to play. Uh, You know, what's so difficult in being on the outside of the situation of being a direct service provider and now looking at the policy work around this is that this is a very fixable problem. We're not listening to what impacted communities need. I think that maybe we're brought up a little more sheltered to the aspect of addiction. You know, it's not a big city and it's not everywhere, you know, but then when you want to find it, you just get in the right crowd that's got it. It's hard. It's harder in a smaller community because there's such a stigma behind it. I think counseling, like like everybody would benefit from, you know, just like seeing a therapist. (laughs) I mean, you know, like, because you'll talk about things that at some point might make you want to use something to change the way that you feel. There is a strong connection between incarceration rates and people with substance use disorder that's been shown in multiple studies. The National Institute on Drug Abuse has said that, quote, treatment must begin in prison and be sustained after release through participation in community treatment programs. For the women residing at her town, private therapy may not really be an affordable treatment option. Many of them are just getting back on Medicaid and learning how to take care of and pay for their physical health again. But being in the house offers them something else that might be bigger than therapy. If you give someone the freedom to feel safe, I think that that is the turning point. And there's something about normalizing these women's experiences that I don't want us to lose sight of in this story. This is not a Hollywood production. These women are experiencing a normal, everyday life with direction. They can talk with ease, joke around even about their criminal past, being the deadbeat mom, the freeloader, or the mastermind behind the operation. And that creates a safe space to heal, grow, and blossom. And it sure doesn't hurt that they are required every other week after dinner to nourish each other with loving affirmations. <laughs> I love you. I love you. <laughs> like, me and I have been here my whole stay together, and like, I can go to with anything, any problem that I'm having, and I love that. And she has very insightful advice all the time, always positive. Um, we're two totally different people because I still have anger issues, and she's like so calm. When selecting sweet cherry trees, a variety of stock guarantees cross-pollination. She's our mama. Yeah, ditto. 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 Yeah
<laughs> you were my glimmer of hope. Aww. Whenever I found out that I could come here and record it. This episode was produced by me, Ariel Avery. Our editor is Josh Adair, who has helped me wrestle with and shape this episode when I found myself in over my head. You can find images of Holly on our website at middleofeverywherepod.org or on Instagram and Facebook at middleofeverywherepod and Twitter at rural underscore stories. Our theme music was composed and produced by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring comes from APM Music. This is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program was made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people. Thank you.